0: Man of Steel, Answers Inside Commentary, Episode 24, Jor-El's Hologram, So Many Questions. I have so many
1: questions. Then of course
2: there's
0: the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question.
3: Start asking questions. You're the answer, son.
0: Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those eagerly anticipating the DCCU. This episode, we've got polar bears, Clark meets Jor-El. We look into some of the themes of the film and more. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC cinematic universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. In our last episode, we talked about Perry's reluctance to publish Lois's story without more, and after uploading the episode, I came across an interesting story about a Canadian government official who publicly declared his belief in aliens on the record. It's a fascinating little documentary documentary by Motherboard, a Vice Media show, and I'll put a link in the show notes. But the point is that one's conviction or belief in something along with your reputation isn't necessarily enough to be taken seriously. Now speaking of being taken seriously, the first shot in this segment of the movie is of a polar bear then panning up to the scout ship in the distance. The sight of a polar bear in a Superman movie in the context of a surrogate fortress of solitude will summon a chuckle from some Superman fans. Writer-director Kevin Smith did a tour of talks at American colleges in 2001 and 2002, collected into a two-disc DVD set entitled An Evening with Kevin Smith, and one of the most infamous segments from that video was a 19-minute story at Kent State University about Smith's work on what would become Superman Lives. I'm sure you know that Smith has a penchant for blue language and humor, but he's great at telling stories and it's worth a list.
3: If you've never heard the story before, I'll put a link in the show notes. He's like, I got some directives for you. If you're going to move forward on the process, some things I want you to do and don't in the script. He's going three things. Okay. I said, all right. One, I don't want to see him in that suit. Two, I don't want to see him fly. And three, he's got to fight a giant spider in the third act. He's like, all right, all right, no flying. I said, but the giant spider intrigues me. (laughs) Why why that? And he's like, do you know anything about spiders? And I said, I mean, no. And he said, well, they're the fiercest killers in the insect kingdom. (laughs) So I was just like, "Um, all right, I'll give it a shot. He's like alright I think we got a movie here he's going the problem though you're missing some beats some action beats you need an action beat every 10 pages something big has to happen I said well what are you thinking about he's like well it's just an example like when you go you have a scene where Brainiac goes to the Fortress of Solitude looking for Superman Superman's dead at this point hope I didn't spoil the movie for anybody so Brainiac's looking for him the Fortress of Solitude and something should happen there there should be a big fight I'm like but Superman's dead at this point he's like I know I know but can't Brainiac fight something else up there and I was like, well, like what? He's like, what about like Superman's guards as soldiers? And I'm like, why, why would Superman need guards? <laughs> you know, he's, he's Superman. He's and plus it's called the Fortress of Solitude. <laughs> Nobody's up there. And he said, well, Jesus Christ, he's going, how about, what about, where is this, in the Antarctic? I said, yeah, he's like, what about p- polar bears? And I was like, polar bears? He said, yeah, have them have fight some polar bears. Brainiac shows up, he's trying to get in the fortress. Polar bears come at him and he just f***ing kills one and one runs away. Because we don't want to piss off the peta people. And I said, you want me to write a scene where Brainiac is razzling polar bears? And he says, yeah, you know anything about polar bears? And I said, no, I don't. He's like, polar bears are the fiercest killers in the animal kingdom. And at this point, I'm just like, this dude has way too much access to the Discovery Channel. (laughs) so
0: the polar bears are a funny in joke for fans who remember the insistence on their inclusion in smith's story but as long as we're bringing up superman lives be sure to watch the death of superman lives what happened available for pre-order soon and available everywhere july 9th which chronicles the behind the scenes story of that production anyways even without knowing about the john peter's joke the polar bear still serves to show the audience that the ship is in the arctic and hasn't Traveled to, say, the Antarctic, the filmmakers went to considerable trouble to ensure that a polar bear might make its way into the film. Here's Zack Snyder on that segment with Empire. You have the polar bear.
2: It made it into a Superman movie. Yeah. John Peters got his wish. Unfortunately, there was no battle. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was funny because I had drawn that when I was drawing the storyboards. I was laughing to myself and I drew a whole drawing. I did. We did a dolly shot originally. We didn't shoot it, but I had drawn it as this like dolly move where we're like with a polar bear and he's lumbering across the the ice flows and he finally like he jumps a couple and then he leaps one and then and it proved to be a lot more difficult to photograph than i had imagined and and i didn't definitely did not want to do a cg polar bear right no. i said no way it's got to be a real polar bear and so that footage is IMAX footage that we got from this IMAX documentary about the polar regions and then we just we talked to them and they let us use it. You know, they spent like six months on a Russian icebreaker looking for polar bears and we just weren't going to do it. I mean, it would have been good. Cool. We, we had it worked out that we were going to bring the polar bear, we're going to put all these ice flows on stage <laughs> and shoot him on stage with a green screen behind him. And we were training him physically to leap. You were training a polar bear? Yeah, to jump from ice flow to ice flow. And, uh, it, but also it's super dangerous to film. I'm like, there's only one guy who has a polar bear in Canada. <clears throat> and I think I've seen the video of that guy. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, <clears throat> you know, you can't, as we talked about it, it got more and more dodgy. Like he's like, okay, it sounded really easy at first. He was like, oh yeah, we'll just, you just put him over there and jump in. And then he's like, okay, but no one can be in the room. And you have to put these electric things around everybody because he won't, so he won't murder everyone. And I was like, oh, okay, so wait a minute, is this fellow really, really trained? Is it like uh, dangerous? He's like, oh no, it's not dangerous. I mean, unless of course he sees you or, you know, sees something shiny or a flash of light or something. I'm like, that's easily ha-. on a film set. That happens all the time. He goes, yeah, yeah. So I mean, there is a chance he could maul us all. But and I was like, okay, well maybe we, maybe this is not what we should be doing. Anyway, so then we found the footage, so it was okay. So
0: the ship says,
2: Recursive diagnostics complete. Guiding presence authenticated, all systems operational.
0: I have three notes here. First, about the ship speaking English, as opposed to Kryptonian. Honestly, I think this is purely a convenience, but I think the apologetics would go something like this. We know that the Kryptonians can acquire human language by way of Zod's ultimatum. We also know that the scout ship's technology is largely compatible with contemporary Kryptonians. We also know that the scout ship suffered no disabilities, as the AI says itself, all systems operational. And it lacked only a command key to take off. So it's possible that the scout ship was using the same technology that Zod did to absorb human language while otherwise relatively dormant in the ice. There's a certain logic to that since language does tend to evolve, and the scout ship, which lacked Phantom drives would want to account for that if the Kryptonian language had changed in the gap of time before the scout ships were ever visited again by Kryptonians from the home planet. We could probably make up more justifications, but it isn't really an issue or necessary. More like a common conceit in dealing with extraterrestrials. But given their mind machine interfaces, it isn't necessarily a stretch. The second note I have here is who is the guiding presence? I'd say the main candidates would be Clark and Jorel. Based on the last episode's discussion on who piloted the ship. I'd suggest that the guiding presence here is Jorel, basically because Clark already had a key to establish his authentication to be the pilot And if a guiding presence is something distinct from a pilot, that allows Clark to fly the vessel, whether or not he's authenticated by the ship, or rather he's authenticated by virtue of the command key. Then at a later point, the jor l AI imparts itself onto the ship and the ship eventually agrees to be guided by this presence upon authentication. And once it allows it, that's when jor l can do things like lift the pilot chairs or reveal the suit to Clark to guide the ship Uh, if not necessarily pilot it. Again, that discussion was last episode. So the third note I have is all systems operational is interesting in the light of the prequel comic because it shows and suggests that Kryptonian technology is self-healing and self-repairing since the last time we saw the scout ship. It was crash landing. The importance and significance of that is to provide the fictional world with access to Kryptonian technology without Kal-El being necessarily versed in it. That reinforces that modern and golden age notion of Clark growing up with a human perspective and human experiences, but still being able to experience developed Kryptonian technology or culture later in life without having to be unnaturally gifted at reassembling Kryptonian tech. The idea of self-assembling or self-propagating Kryptonian technology is quite traditional, beginning with the introduction or idea of crystal-based technology, simply throw and grow. In the Burn reboot, Clark had the benefits of robots like Kelix, who would, Build and maintain Kryptonian technology, and here the self-repairing ship takes that role. That idea is almost always tied to an archive or arc of Kryptonian knowledge as well, and we don't have time to go through all the iterations of how the knowledge of Krypton lives on. But in Man of Steel, Jor-El specifically intends to limit Kal's exposure to Krypton, which is an interesting take. For example, although Jor-El stored the codex in Kal-El, he never tells Kal about it. We'll eventually get to the line, but I believe. Jor-El assumed that one day, Kal-El would be curious about and explore his own genetic makeup. And at that time, he would uncover the Codex, and then Superman and humanity would come to a mutual decision about what to do about it. I think Jor-El specifically avoided mentioning the Codex for fear of influencing the outcome of that decision. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Before we get into the diegetic analysis of this scene, let's take a step back and look at some of those creative criticisms raised against it. And generally, there are are three criticisms that sort of overlap some. First, the idea that the scene is redundant. Second, that the scene is too expositional or boring. And third, that the scene is very stoic and unemotional. Creatively, the film is following a modified three-act structure, whose first act ends somewhere perhaps after Zod's ultimatum. Note that the three-act structure is a guideline or an observation. It's not an immutable law of fiction. And while each act essentially has its own setup, confrontation, and resolution, they also serve that same general function for the overall story. The first act generally provides exposition as to character and setting and ends with an inciting incident. It's the setup. And the second act provides rising action, where the things developed by the setup are complicated or it's the confrontation. It brings the world or the character to its lowest point. And then the third and final act contains the climax and the finale or the resolution. So, setup, conflict, resolution. Again, not hard, fast rules or absolutes, but subject to modification, with Krypton acting as a prelude and a less bright line act delineation. But this is where we are, broadly speaking. And the setup within the first act is mostly the mystery of Clark's origins, from his perspective. The confrontation in the film is between Clark's newfound heritage and the remnants of his people. And then the resolution in the third act is Clark siding with his adopted planet against Zod. In other words, it's natural that the first act should be exposition heavy. But especially when you consider that the first 20 minutes of the film was a prelude on an alien planet, and we've already had several action set pieces between then and now. The scene is only about 4 minutes long, and in terms of redundancy, there's actually very very nominal overlap. Everything that we saw on Krypton was experiential, and closely tied to Jor-El's viewpoint, along with all the assumptions that that entailed. In other words, there was very little exposition, simply action in Meteores. However, here, Jor-El's presentation provides context and explanation in which you can insert those experiences. We get the history and the motivations and the societal structure of Krypton, which help us reinterpret what we saw in the prelude. I don't think we have time to go over all the information that we learned from jor presentation, but it is a lot. And everything about this first act is resolving the mystery of Clark's alien origins, and this scene is the payoff before the inciting incident of Zod's ultimatum. Well, regarding the lack of emotion, some of that is informed by our expectations as to how reunions between somebody adopted as a child with their biological parents should be, but pandering to that expectation wouldn't necessarily ring true in this situation. However, examining the situation is much more of a diegetic analysis, so we'll get into that later. For now, let's get back to some of the lines.
4: To see you standing there having grown into an adult.
0: If only Lara could have witnessed this. So Jorel's line provides a lot of insights which we can pose as questions to be answered. First, a question of self-identity. Why does the hologram act like Jorel if it's aware that it's just a shadow? And second, the question of verification. How does Jorel know that this adult before him is kal And third, why couldn't a hologram of Lara have witnessed this too? So the idea of a hologram saying to see you standing there raises an eyebrow for some because it means that this hologram thinks of itself as Jorel. However, I think that's exactly how it was meant to be taken. When the hologram says to see you standing there, it implies 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 emotion. And when he says if only Lara could have witnessed this, that is regret. And later the hologram expresses anger, frustration, and pleading with Zod, which should answer Zod's question as to whether Zod's hologram can feel pain. Regret and frustration would imply that it can experience mental anguish on some level. Ultimately, I don't see a problem with this. As a shadow of his consciousness, it almost seems like it would take a lot more effort to not act like Jor-El than to be like Jor-El. The idea of a more robotic AI, with Jor-El's likeness merely as an interface rather than an actual consciousness, may stem from Superman Returns, where Jor-El's hologram apparently has no hesitation at telling like, Luther everything about Kryptonian crystal technology, suggesting a lack of awareness in general, much less self-awareness. So if this hologram is self-aware, how much awareness does it have otherwise? Specifically, how does the hologram know that this person standing there is Kal-El? And more generally, how does Jor-El know anything? How does Jor-El know how to speak English, or that he can trust Lois Lane? Understanding this will give us insight into why the how-it-should-have-ended conclusions don't necessarily ring true. We've already discussed extensively why throwing cows' vessel at the Black Zero is folly from a practical standpoint of actually trying to Succeed back in episode 10 of this podcast, where we dissected the logistics of Jorel's plan. However, at that time, we didn't really look at it from a character perspective why Clark would be unlikely to consult with Jorel, or why Jorel is unlikely to propose that plan. And we'll definitely discuss these when we come to Zod's ultimatum. But figuring out how and what Jorel's hologram can and does know gives us insight into the logistics of the film and why the things unfold as they did. Jorel's conscious and hologram reside within the command key. And later we get this exchange.
1: Where did you come from? The command key, Miss Lee.
4: Thanks to you, I'm uploading into the ship's mainframe. Who are you? I am Cal's father.
0: Note that... As soon as Jor-El emerges, he's aware of who Lois is and addresses her by name. More on that in a bit, but where does the hologram's knowledge end on Krypton? Well, presumably when the command key is constructed, which happens after Zod attacks and as Jor-El is bonding the Codex to Kal-El. Maybe there's some leeway for the command key to continue to gather information after it's assembled, but that wouldn't be a part of Jor-El's consciousness. In other words, the holographic Jor-El doesn't know that Zod attacks packed the Citadel, killed the real Jor-El, or was captured by the Sapphire Guards and then sentenced to the Phantom Zone. Holographic Jor-El reasonably assumes that all of Krypton is dead based on Jor-El's projections, but has none of those specific facts that we just talked about. So forgetting all the reasons why telling Kal-El to blitz the Black Zero wouldn't work, as we've already discussed back in episode 10, and all the reasons why Clark wouldn't go to Jor-El, as we have yet to discuss but will one day, let's assume that Clark does go to Jorel and that blitzing the black zero could work well if you put yourself into the holograms shoes huh, such as they are based on the information that he has or could know Why in the world would he tell Kal-El to banish Zod without a moment's hesitation? In the How It Should Have Ended video, it's proposed that Jor-El would perceive Zod as a monster, and then encourage Kal to blitz Zod. And to be fair, there's some justification for that. Jor-El does say, I will honor the man you once were, Zod. Not this monster you've become. But consider that sentence for a moment. It indicates that Zod was once a man to be honored, and indeed when holographic Jor-El encounters Zod, he never stops trying to convince him to do the right thing. But also consider the larger context. From the hologram's perspective, all of Krypton is and should be dead. Zod's very presence on Earth defies that underlying assumption. Given Zod's extraordinary presence, what else extraordinary might have occurred? Consider some of the possibilities which would would render Cal banishing Zod without discussion utter madness. Imagine if Jor-El was wrong about Krypton's fate. So the real Jor-El is still alive and waiting on Krypton for Zod to retrieve his son for him. Imagine if Zod's coup had succeeded, and he had brought the real Jor-El and Lara with him. kal real parents could be on the Black Zero, with any number of innocent refugees from Krypton. Imagine if Zod had a fleet of ships in waiting, and Kal spends his one and only answer on the Black Zero. Or imagine if, at the 11th hour, the Thanagarians, or the Guardians of Oa, appear, and while Krypton couldn't be spared, its inhabitants were taken to another habitable planet to resettle. All of these possibilities could have occurred, with Zod still being alive and present above Earth, and sending Kal to doom everyone on the Black Zero without learning more is madness. Think about it. When does holographic Jor-El conceive of his plan to stop Zod? Only after Lois has uploaded Jor-El onto the Black Zero. And then he's afforded all the information that ship could provide him, like the disposition of Krypton, who the passengers were on the Black Zero, what Zod's plans were for Earth, and very likely insight into Lois's mind and person by way of whatever interrogation was conducted upon her. Basically, we can reasonably propose that the ship's act as Holographic Jor-El's sensory organs. So how does Holographic Jor-El know that this adult before him is Kal-El? Well, the scout ship may have had an opportunity to scan Kal, but even using just basic deduction, Jor-El believes that Kal has powers on Earth, that this person destroyed a century with his bare hands, and if Kal is the last living Kryptonian, ipso facto this powerful Kryptonian is Kal-El. Without a scan, another living Kryptonian might also be able to act as an imposter. We don't know ultimately, but there's nothing story-breaking about Jor-El reasonably believing that this is his son. Certainly, holographic Jor-El had more basis to answer Clark's questions here than to answer Lex Luthor in Superman Returns. So how does Jor-El know how to speak English? Well, as we've already discussed, by whatever mechanism the Kryptonians are able to learn English on the Black Zero would reasonably also be available to the scout ship. And we've spoken in the past about the Kryptonians being aware that they're not alone in the universe. The Thanagarians are explicitly name-dropped in the prequel comic, but even without it, we have Jor-El and Lara evaluating Earth's inhabitants clinically. In other words, humanity isn't the very first sentient lifeform encountered by the Kryptonians, and thus a lack of amazement by Jor-El and Lara. And yes, I'm sticking with the word sentient over sapient, based on a well-reasoned ruling by Judge John Hodgman. I'll put a link in the show notes. If Krypton knows that there are other alien societies out there, then it's reasonable that they'd have the technology that accounts for having to deal with alien language and communication. And this, of course, is a science fiction trope. But it's a reasonable one within the confines of the story and the universe built by Man of Steel. And if Krypton had this universal translator technology, then when the Guardians, the Green Lanterns, the Thanagarians, etc. descend upon DCCU Earth, we can reasonably expect them to have universal translators as well. Well, we already answered how the hologram Jorel would know who Lois Lane is and that she could be trusted. Basically, he accesses her interrogation to learn who she is and what her relationship to his son is. And again, Jorel has none of this information until being uploaded Onto the Black Zero, which makes Lois' contribution that much more significant. But it also shows the limited insight Hologram Jorel could have actually provided Clark had Clark gone to Jorel before boarding the Black Zero. Will, get into it more when we come to it in the commentary, but also consider this. Jor-El has essentially premised everything that Kal went through, on the basis that Krypton was gone, and that Kal is its last survivor. Their entire relationship hinges on this being true. Yet Zod's appearance mere days after Clark encounters Jorel makes that central premise plainly false. Think about that for a second from Clark's perspective. But that's a future episode. Let's get back to our questions. Now the third objection that is often raised by this line is a reasonable one. Why couldn't Lara have witnessed this? Why did Jorel copy only his consciousness and not Lara's? And that's a legitimate question. Jorel seems self-satisfied with being able to see Cal groan, and he regrets that Lara can't. So clearly, an interest exists. And the fact that he was able to copy his own consciousness seems to imply a capability to do it. But he didn't. And ultimately, we don't know why, but it isn't difficult at all to propose theories and apologetics for why Lara's consciousness wasn't copied with Jor-El's. I've seen it suggested that Krypton is a patriarchal society, so Jor-El just didn't think to include Lara. They raised the idea of Feora as second to Zod and Lara as second to Jor-El, but I don't think that's accurate. Remember that Feora is still respected above all amongst the insurgents, which seems improbable if there was a general Kryptonian bias against women. Also, the council member that speaks out against Zod and who sits in the centermost position before being killed by Zod was a woman. And then finally in the prequel comic, Kara Zor-El earned the position of captain for her scout ship. And we don't know whether the meritocracy continues to Krypton today, but it certainly was an ideal at the time. So I don't think Jor-El excluded Lara based on thoughtlessness or intentional sexism. There's some merit to the idea that Jor-El was simply attempting to limit Kal's exposure to Kryptonian ideas. Jor-El explains this as his reason for not accompanying Kal to Earth. And while this was a conviction that they both held, back on Krypton, we saw that Jor-El was the one more determined to send Kal away. Lara mourns and says, I can't do it. I thought I could, but now that he's here... And we'll talk about this later, but this may partially explain why Jor-El's hologram behaves so stoically towards Kal, to limit or prevent emotional manipulation. Jorel might have considered it too painful for Lara and Cal to maintain emotional distance. But again, we ultimately don't know, and I think the easiest rationale is to simply blame the technology. We've discussed it in the past, but Jorel's hologram is a novel that is new and never seen before, technology. But it also isn't radical, that is, completely unexpected or inconceivable technology. If someone were to propose a self-driving electric wheelchair, something that pilots patients throughout a facility without human intervention, that would be new and novel, but would contain little radically beyond anything that we could do today. And the support for this lies primarily between Zod's interaction with Jor-El's hologram. Zod asks whether the hologram can feel pain, meaning he doesn't know whether it can, meaning that the technology's parameters are new to him and likely all Kryptonians. However, at the same time, Zod is hardly shocked at the idea that Jor-El might exist purely as a consciousness and that seems consistent with their interrogation technology, their ability to learn languages, to create presentations on the fly, and somatic reconditioning. All this technology implies that mind-machine interfaces are not radical technologies to Kryptonians, and not something that Zod would find shocking or surprising. However, if technology is novel, that provides all the justification you need to explain why Lara wasn't copied too. For example, for all we know, Jor-El simply perfected the technology technology only days before, or the technology takes months upon months to copy, compress, and create its first base consciousness, and Lara simply didn't have time to undergo the process before Jorel knew that it would work. Or perhaps it has some adverse effect on one's physiology that Jorel wouldn't subject his pregnant wife to. Again, we don't know. The bottom line is, for this criticism or plot hole to be sustainable, we'd have to know that the technology was readily available, safe, quick to use, and repeatable, and we simply don't have those facts. And when a criticism hinges on assumed facts, there's no reason you can't assume those facts go in a different direction, unless or until something in the work contradicts that. In other words, when you have one set of assumed facts that contradicts the film, and another set of assumed facts that doesn't, the first set of assumptions don't create a plot hole. It just proves that your assumptions can't be right. Only if there's no possible reconciliation that remains consistent with the film is there a plot hole. Now, incidentally, if jor tech was trivial and easy to replicate, that would arguably be one way to save Krypton, or at least the essence of its populace. That is, everyone could save themselves virtually, and that's at least one of the theories proposed as a reconciliation for the Fermi paradox. Concisely, why spread through the physical space-time universe if you can just live virtually? It sounds a little bit like The Matrix, and this is a completely unsubstantiated idea. But wouldn't it be interesting if Jor? learned how to fight via all those mind machine interfaces they have available. Chuck. Guys, I know Kung Fu i think i have other more reasonable apologetics for that but this is insane we have only just finished addressing Jorel's first line i need to stop traipsing down tangents despite my urge to launch into a comparison with the matrix but i'm gonna press on and pick up the pace
4: <laughs> who are you i am your father cal or at least a shadow of him his consciousness my name was Joel L. And Cal? That's my name. Cal L.
0: It is. Now I'm going to stop it there just to comment on this being the one moment where Clark allows himself to show a little emotion. Clark's smiling because after decades of searching, Jonathan was right.
3: You are my son. But somewhere out there, you, you have another father, too, who gave you another name. And he sent you here for a reason, Clark. And even if it takes you the rest of your life, you owe it to yourself to find out what that reason is.
0: So here is the other father, and here is his other name, and the fulfillment of Jonathan's promise, and exactly why Clark immediately follows up by asking. I have so many questions.
5: Where do I come from?
0: Why did you send me here? Clark wants to know the reason, his identity, his purpose for being. And before we continue, we should briefly talk about why Clark seems so guarded in this encounter. Why isn't this an emotional reunion with hugs and tears like we've seen on TV? Well, very few of those meetings are without prior communication. Although the parties are reuniting for the first time in person, typically the meeting is preceded by telephonic or electronic or written correspondence to ensure that the meeting is mutually desired. The adopted child and the biological parent have had time to ruminate over what this meeting will mean, and it's fairly common that there's an outpouring of emotions. But additionally, the baggage attached to those meetings is entirely different. Doubtless, there is baggage, but generally it remains within the realm of human experience and doesn't involve interstellar extraterrestrial beings. When Clark stepped onto the ship, he didn't think he was going to meet a living member of his people, much less a copy of his Father. Unlike those preparing for tearful reunions, he wasn't anticipating or expecting this specific moment. Rather, his thoughts were probably more preoccupied with the implications of letting Lois go, of this ancient ship which just took off in front of a dozen credible government witnesses. The paradigm by which he had lived his entire life up to this point had just completely changed, and in that context, he's suddenly hit with a new revelation that goes beyond mechanics and logistics, but right Right to the heart of his identity, and the questions that he's been asking his entire life. Imagine the shock and the flood of questions, but also consider how Clark may perceive Jor-El. We never see a visual effect related to Clark's use of x-ray vision to diagnose Lois, or in the interrogation scene, and in the past we've wondered whether Clark has ever acted as a living lie detector like he has in tradition. Listener Dennis raises the possibility that when Clark first looks at Jorel's hologram, he uses his super senses. Clark looks at this strangely dressed humanoid, but sees no organs, hears no heartbeat, and hears no shuffling of footsteps against the deck of the ship. We don't know that Clark's done this, but that's a reasonable explanation for why Clark intuits that Jorel is incorporeal without having to be expressly told that. In fact, the visual effects director says that Snyder described Clark's vision powers as being able to see all spectrums. So wouldn't it be interesting if Clark could see the quote-unquote strings that allows for the projection of the hologram, that would otherwise be invisible to the eye? So Clark always knows, from the outset, that this is merely a projection and not a person. That's a possibility. And here's Henry Cavill talking about Crowe's performance as intentionally otherworldly.
1: With Russell, it was quite interesting playing that with him because obviously this is jor AI. And so there's an aspect of this missing something which you can't quite put your finger on. There's something off. And that's the beauty of, of what Russell's performance was. It's very much the workings of jor mind when interacting with his son. But at the same time, there's this f- funny distance, which I thought Russell played perfectly. And there's this wonderful connection and sense of destiny and, and fate in, in the jor character, which Russell brings really well. And it was, again, very easy to feed off that when in, in, those, in those key moments of understanding that everything's gone to the one thing I have is this jor AI, who at one stage I forget is actually an AI and is not actually my, my, my father in, in you know, flesh and blood and yet he still gives that sense of powerful emotion. Rossa does that wonderfully. However,
0: even without knowing that jor is a hologram, a certain degree of stoicism is a very human reaction. In preparation for this episode, I did research the accounts of many adoptees meeting their biological parents for the first time. I put special focus into international adoptions because of the cultural differences and because the adoptees were more likely to be aware of the differences early on. The Huffington Post did a 30-article series from biological parents, adoptive parents, and the adoptees that covered a whole spectrum of attitudes and reactions and reasons, which I read through and enjoyed thoroughly. I can't say that there were very many predictable patterns necessarily. However, one story that I came across was especially interesting, and that's the documentary entitled AKA Dan. Dan Matthews was born in South Korea and adopted by loving Caucasian parents in the United States. Dan always knew that he was adopted and grew up with a happy and healthy childhood. However, at the age of 28, Dan was informed that his biological parents wanted to meet him, and they wanted to introduce him to his twin brother and his younger sister. The overall story ends up being more about Dan's cultural shock in experiencing Korea. However, it's an interesting insight into at least one adoptee's experience.
6: Every single time that I've talked to anybody about this, it's been very like negative, very like, this probably isn't going to happen. Like yeah. this isn't going to. Oh man, I'm shaking. <laughs> Dear Dan Matthews, I'm writing to share the information of your birth family. Both your parents visited our office yesterday to meet with me and also forwarded their letters and pictures for you. As you may be aware, your birth parents were married and still are married. They have one son and they have a daughter. You may also find that your brother Ji Seong is actually your twin brother. What? This is you. Have, Oh, crap. What? This is... I think that I need to get a, a DNA test. I think that based off like my toxic Robin and stuff, I think that we need to make that happen like pretty immediately. Yeah. I don't know, it's just gonna be like a weird coincidence. Yeah. So, a lot of it's just me being just anxious. There's a lot of anxiety, I think. The prospect of meeting this family and being in Korea. What could go wrong and how I, I think that something bad's gotta happen, that they could be financially off, they might want money from me, um, they might, the brother and the sister could hate me. Dear Dan, it is a quick message to let you know that the DNA result came to confirm that the parents you are going to meet today are your blood-related birth parents. Wow. I still want to see the paperwork. Like I really—that's that, very, very important to me. But I feel like I just, I just feel like that, like reading this email, that it's—it's um, it's just so casual. Like it's just like, ah. Oh, and, oh, and and by the way, they're your, they're they're your blood parents.
7: Well, What makes you kind of think that they might scam you? But what's the point of them scamming you?
6: There's just a lot of information that I don't know, mm. and that. Um, I feel like they just did the blood test really, really quickly, and it was t- it was too convenient for me to get this email like right before we went there. I know like if, if it's true, then it's it's amazing timing. I was just looking at people and I just I was looking at her and I just I, I was hugging her, but uh, it was it was difficult to like I, I, because I've never met them before, there's that distance that I really have between myself and
0: the family and Dan Dan was like really he was in shock for sure, so like
6: I think I was just in shock the entire time. Because, like, you know that you're supposed to feel something to these people that are so, super, like, but you're really disconnected from them. Like, I just, because I've never met them before.
7: Now, let's get right to it. You've met with your biological parents and your siblings, some of whom you didn't even know existed just recently. What went through your mind as you went into that room to sit down with them?
6: It was a really surreal moment. It was something that I kind of played through my mind over and over again before I actually got into it, and then I, it, you walk in there and you, you don't expect anything. Um, it, was, it was shocking. I think the best word to describe it is very shocking.
0: I'm not saying that Clark is that skeptical. However, in episode 15, we talked about understanding Jonathan and the environment and the era in which he grew up. What we have to remember is many of those things overlap with Clark, who would be just as determined to learn about aliens. And the same kinds of things that would reasonably cause Jonathan to view the government with skepticism or to have concern about humanity's reaction to Clark may have been the same things that Clark would have uncovered in his own search. Ultimately, extra Terrestrial proposals tend to be heavily speculative and can only be so academically serious, but there is a general tendency towards pessimism, which gets reflected in our culture as we saw in that episode. Clark doesn't know what Jor-El's expectations are for him in relation to humanity. Clark doesn't know if he's the herald of an incoming invasion, if he's expected to conquer and subjugate Earth. He doesn't know if his arrival is merely a happy accident or a cruel experiment One of the common narratives about extraterrestrial contact is that they may purely want our resources, without regard for our existence. And despite not being expressly stated that way, that's exactly what Zod wants from Earth.
1: Imagine the smartest squirrel you can. No matter how hard you try, you won't be able to explain our society to it. After all, from the squirrel's perspective, a tree is all that a sophisticated intelligence like itself needs to survive. So, humans cutting down whole forests is madness. But we don't destroy forests because we hate squirrels. We just want the resources. The squirrel's wishes and the squirrel's survival are of no concern to us. A Type Three civilization in need of resources may treat us in a similar way. They might just evaporate our oceans to make collecting whatever they need easier. One of the aliens might think for a second, Oh, tiny little apes, they build really cute concrete structures. Oh well. Now they're dead before activating warp speed.
0: So even from a purely human perspective, without having to x-ray the hologram, Clark has reasonable cause for stoicism in this first encounter. He's stunned by this surprise encounter and he's guarding his heart against an unknown entity claiming to be his father but asking nothing in return. Ultimately, Clark has no real way to judge whether Jor-El is telling the truth except to take it on faith. And Clark isn't so hard of heart that he can't listen. But he also isn't so gullible or naive that he simply abandons himself to Jor-El without first listening to what he has to say. And so what does Jor-El have to say? Well, he answers Clark's questions. Where did he come from and why did Jor-El send him?
4: You came from Krypton. A world with a much harsher environment than Earth's. Long ago, in an era of expansion, our race spread out through the stars, seeking new worlds to settle upon. This scout ship was one of thousands launched into the void. We built outposts on other planets. Using great machines to reshape environments to our needs. For 100,000 years, our civilization flourished. Accomplishing wonders. What happened? Artificial population control was established. The outposts and space exploration were abandoned. We exhausted our natural resources. As a result, our planet's core became unstable. Eventually, our military leader, General Zod, attempted a coup. But by then it was too late. Your mother and I foresaw the coming calamity, and we took certain steps to ensure your survival.
0: Okay, wow, 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 wow. So much to unpack. I have to pick a few. Let's see. Um, I'll just pick a few notes and maybe we'll circle back onto this in the context of a later commentary or a mailbag or topical episode or something. But I have to be selective. I can't talk about everything that I have in my notes. Basically, we only have the slightest glimpse into Kryptonian culture, history, technology, and societal structure. So it would be presumptuous to construct too much based on the scant few data points that we have. It's one of the reasons I've largely skipped krypton in this commentary because we could build entire speculative structures that ultimately go nowhere so i'm editing i'm editing okay uh this note this is the first time that krypton is uttered on earth and it's interesting because the word is already something pre-existing in the english language so i wonder how that hit clark traditionally we know that superman is an alien in Action Comics number one, but it isn't until a year later in Superman issue number one that we learn the name of the planet is Krypton. Why Krypton is something I feel like I've learned before, but since forgotten. Feel free to write in if you know why Krypton was picked as the name. Uh, speaking of writing in, uh, the next note I'm picking is based on an email by listener Ethan, who wanted to know why Jor-el's first description of Krypton is of a harsh environment. He comments that Jor-el could have described it as destroyed advanced, tragic, or anything else but lead with the fact that it's a harsher environment. And I think that's a good point. I'd counter that Jor-El's second line, though, is a vital piece of exposition that's easy to take for granted. Jor-El is ostensibly explaining that humans couldn't survive on Krypton. And that fact is so important, it's essentially restated five different times throughout the film, so that even the most inattentive audience member would get the point. It's stated here, uh, later during the voiceover when Clark learns to fly. Uh, then by Feora, explaining why Lois must wear the helmet. Again, it's stated by Hamilton in explaining the effects that terraforming will have on Earth. And then finally by jor to Zod in describing it as genocide. So it's vital that we understand that humans can't survive in a Kryptonian environment. That helps us understand the stakes. However, the aspect of that that's missed by many is that it also provides the corresponding explanation for why Kryptonians can survive within Earth's atmosphere without issue. Even if you don't subscribe to my theories on the interaction of the powers and the atmosphere and the armor, it's incontrovertible that Feora and Zod both breathe Earth's atmosphere without respiratory distress. Yes, they have sensory issues, but not respiratory distress. And in the chemistry of life, that's a radical idea, because things that are suited for a certain environment do not generally survive in a different one. And we get a hint of that with Baby Clark's respiratory troubles as described by Martha. So the filmmakers are clearly trying to reiterate that Krypton is not just different, but that it is harsher, that is, empirically worse than Earth's more nurturing atmosphere. Like how a desert is harsher than the tropics. This qualification accounts for Kryptonian survival on Earth and why it gets brought up again and again. It isn't in my opinion an explanation of how Clark's powers work, but that topic is already well trod by me. Okay, uh let's see. I'm going to skip over all the Age of Exploration notes based on the reasons that we've already talked about. We don't really know how their society was structured and how exactly everything happened. I will say that as a parable it does address that sort of environmental theme uh, Uh, while talking about the hope that we might escape careful stewardship of our planet simply by spreading to the stars. Instead, showing that for reasons unknown, it wasn't so simple. In other words, we can't simply abandon our planet for the stars. We do have to be careful stewards of our planet. And again, I'll refer you to the many entertaining videos on YouTube about the Fermi paradox because that's one of the reconciliations for the paradox. I do want to highlight that Zod is mentioned in a neutral context, and it could almost be interpreted positively. That is, Jor-El says, but by then it was too late. Which suggests that had Zod attempted his coup earlier, it would not have been too late. Uh, Note that Jor-El does not talk about the ultimate fate of Zod's attempted coup, reinforcing the idea that holographic Jor-El's knowledge ends at the creation of the command key. Also note that this Jor-El takes Krypton's destruction for granted. I'd also like to briefly mention the implications of Clark being familiar with Christian narratives and hearing this story. Put it another way, Clark being familiar with and raised to know the stories of Moses and Jesus might predispose him to be more likely to accept this story of being sent away from calamity, like a baby in a basket escaping Pharaoh or heeding the predictions of a wise man to avoid the wrath of Herod. If Clark had grown up reading, I don't know, Dragon Ball Z, Invincible, or Squadron Supreme, his attitude might be a little different. This definitely isn't in the Film one way or the other, it's just an interesting idea to think about. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about the incredible visuals provided by the Liquid Geo presentation because the FX Guide podcast spoke directly with Weta Digital on that, and you can find those links in the show notes. And here are some clips just to give you a taste.
7: So they're machines and computers and robots. They have a different way of interfacing with human beings, and that's through this um, technology that we called Liquid Geo. And basically, it is—it's um, a bunch of like silver beads that are suspended through a magnetic field, and the machine is able to control that magnetic field, so that the collection of beads behave almost like three-dimensional pixels, and they can create a, a surface that floats in the air.
6: This stemmed from an idea that Zack Snyder had. He, he wanted to do something that um, you know was was interesting and different in the way that you saw information presented. He didn't want to do just a typical screen. And um, so one of the ideas that Zack had was to make it a little bit more tactile.
7: There's a sequence in the film where Jor-El, who is Superman's father, teaches him about where he came from, What What life was like on Krypton and this liquid geo surrounds them and creates an immersive kind of panel display that walks Superman through the whole history of Krypton and the beads change and form and make new shapes and almost in like a Greco-Roman kind of bas-relief show the whole history of Superman's past. We did a lot of experimentation to figure out what this history of Krypton would look like. We, um, we started with just the liquid bead geo kind of technology itself. We did quite a lot of concept art uh, based on various um, sculptures. We, we looked at some um, uh, bas-relief from the Rockefeller Center. We looked at um, Greco-Roman references and tried to figure out how, like, if you were depicting you know, a sci-fi world through the medium of stone sculpture, what that might look like.
0: The main thing I'd like to highlight or review is that idea that we've discussed back in episode fourteen that this presentation and later the setting of Zod's interrogation are unlikely to be manually created artistic renderings by Jor-el or Zod, but instead they're examples of the Kryptonian mind machine interfaces, allowing these busy men of action to express their thoughts visually and stylistically. When you listen to those wetted digital clips, you'll hear all the work and all the effort they went into to make those presentations and i think it's clear that jor and zod didn't have that kind of time to do this now the other thing that often gets pointed out during this presentation just visually is how kal-el's ship appears to be an homage to his crystalline ship in the donner films if you have the time and the inclination i really recommend checking out those fx guide interviews which do get a little technical but just show you how much love and effort and technology went into the development of these liquid geo scenes
4: this is a genesis chamber all Kryptonians were conceived in chambers such as this. Every child was designed to fulfill a predetermined role in our society, as a worker, a warrior, a leader, and so on. Your mother and I, believe Krypton had lost something precious, the element of choice, of chance. What if a child dreamed of becoming something other than what society had intended for him or her? What if a child aspired to something greater? You were the embodiment of that belief, Carl. Krypton's first natural birth in centuries. That's why we risked so much to save you.
0: So a quick etymological detour, the word Genesis does come from the title of the first book of the Bible. The first book in Hebrew is Bereshith, literally in the beginning, and then the Greek translators phoneticized that into something like Genesis, which then took on its broader meaning in late Latin. All of which is to say the word comes from the book title and not the other way around in this case, which suggests an intentional layering of myths and themes on the part of the filmmakers. In other words, selecting Genesis Chamber, as opposed to Burns, say, Birthing Matrix, for example. Now, beyond themes, perhaps the word Matrix was avoided just to prevent a direct comparison to the Matrix film, and the short answer to that is that the films share a visual effects supervisor, who was clearly hired for his talents and his style, and asking him not to use them would be like hiring H.R. Giger and telling him not to do his style. But, like I said before, that's another episode. In terms of the references, the predetermined roles listed by Jorel map onto the roles found in Plato's Republic, which later we see Clark reading. And the comparisons between Man of Steel and Plato's Republic is a deep rabbit hole that we don't have time to get into, but it's an incredibly persuasive lens with which to view the themes of Man of Steel. And I'm tending to skip it only because I feel like I'd have to teach Plato's Republic first before we can then use it as a lens, and I'm not really interested in doing that. But if you're already versed in it, there are a lot of great articles out there that explore what Man of Steel has to say about Plato. Uh, There's an article by Peter Lawler, a professor of political philosophy at Barry College, also Jeffrey Reiter, an assistant professor of English at Baptist College of Florida. And just for a taste of those kinds of analyses, here's Father Robert Barron, a master of philosophy, outlining his view of the parallels.
5: There is a theme in it, I think is is worthy of some uh, reflection, namely the tension between autonomy and state control. What becomes clear is that Jor-El was resisting this totalitarian uh, impulse of General Zod to control utterly the genetics of kryptonite newborns. I know I sound pretty nerdy right now, but what's laid out is a kind of platonic vision. You know, in Plato's Republic, uh, there are three strictly controlled classes of people. You know, the low-level kind of workers, and there's the soldiers, and there's the, the guardians. Something very similar now on, on uh, Krypton, where they control the genetics of the uh, newborns, so the society is strictly divided. And then the movie will unfold as the story of the battle between these two figures, General Zod and Superman, representative of state-controlled, you know, manipulation and personal autonomy. Now, if you think that Plato um, reference is a little bit uh, too recherche or I'm reading too much into the movie, at one point, the teenage Superman, he was reading uh, Plato's Republic. So they're making an explicit uh, Plato reference. Well, you know what comes to mind here is the work of Karl Popper. Karl Popper was a uh, 20th century philosopher who grew up uh, under Hitler. So he knew all about totalitarianism, and he rails against it for the rest of his life. And he writes a famous book called The Open society and its enemies, in which he identifies Plato, the great Plato, as the father of all totalitarianism. And what he means is this, that Plato, like all totalitarians, begins with some kind of idealistic uh, notion. So in Plato's case, you know, here's the perfect republic. Here's the way things ought to be organized. But then what he does is he strictly requires that that society come into being through a legal uh, prescription. So, you know, in, in Plato, there's a strict communism of the guardians. They have to have all property and wives and children in common. Among the um, auxiliaries, who are the soldiers, there's a very strict censorship in place because their emotions and bodies have to be shaped in a particular way. They can't listen to any old song or read any old uh, myth. So there's strict censorship, absolutely enforced communism, etc. So Karl Popper sees this as the prototype of all forms of state-controlled totalitarianism. He sees, in fact, you know, uh, Hitler's Germany, Stalin's Russia, uh, mao's china and he probably would have seen uh, the ayatollah's iran as direct descendants of plato's republic okay there's if you want, the totalitarian society, the enemy of what Popper calls the open society. So he becomes now an advocate of the great sort of liberal democracies of modernity that put a stress not on state control of everything, but on individual freedom. Uh, He certainly would approve of Thomas Jefferson, who would say, you know, we have these basic human rights, the government ought not to get in the way of those, and that we should pursue freedom as we see fit. Uh, The autonomous self in the midst of an open and free society, that's the political idea Now, here's the thing. If Plato is the uh, prototype, he's the philosopher of the totalitarian society, at the limit, Nietzsche is the philosopher of the open society. And here's what I mean. If you say, well, individual liberty is the great value, individual autonomy, the limit case of that would be Nietzsche's Übermensch, (laughs) he's German, Superman, by the way, right? Nietzsche's Superman, who lies beyond good and evil whose freedom is so absolute that he determines utterly the meaning and purpose of his life. Now, as I've often argued, people like Jean-Paul Sartre are Nietzschean in spirit, in the measure that they so apotheosize freedom that they say, well, my individual will determines meaning. And, to be fair, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, 1992 decision of the United States Supreme Court, then said, it belongs to the very nature of liberty to determine the meaning of one's own life of nature and of the universe. See, what that is, is the apotheosizing of the autonomous self in such a way that it becomes ubermensch, it becomes Superman. So, here's what I'm seeing in this movie, is you've got General Zod, how like God, representing the deification of the totalitarian state, versus Ubermensch, <laughs> versus the Nietzschean Superman, who represents the apotheicizing of the individual autonomous ego. Might you read the political history of the last, let's say, 300 years as largely a battle between these two visions of society? There is the political struggle between General Zod and Ubermensch that's been going on for the past 300 years.
0: Now I'm cutting it off there, but I don't want to misrepresent his position. Father Baron of course continues towards a conclusion of theonomy over heteronomy or autonomy. But you can listen to his complete analysis online. I'll put a link in the show notes. And of course, like with anything uh, involved with interpretation or philosophy, his view is not the one and only interpretation. Now, beyond the themes raised there, consider how Jorel's exaltation to freedom, free will, choice, and chance over destiny tie to the the classic american dream or the immigration narrative the idea of freedom and upwards mobility in contravention to the rigid societal structure found in plato's republic there are a lot of thematic parallels that one can draw with man of steel and i'm still exploring a way to meaningfully convey them without muddying the analysis too much i definitely find the themes of birth and sacrifice and environmental issues and free will to be insightful ways to view the film but i'm a little stuck on that theme of codified old versus principled new as well, which I'm sure you're tired of me raising again and again by now, but let's table all of that for now. Diegetically, I want to point out that Jorel is an optimist. The fact is, without the guidance of a predetermined role, if things are left to choice or chance, a child could become something lesser than what society had intended, right? It's possible that Cal-El might have spent his life baiting crab traps or bussing tables. However, Jorel gambled on greatness, and he didn't despair that Cal had yet to exhibit it to this point. Jorel is purely pleased that Cal is simply being his son. And standing before him. Put it another way, Jor-El has answers for Kal-el, but at no point does he ask Kal-el what does he do, how many acclaims has he achieved, what's his progress, etc. I mention this because I've heard it raised as an objection: that Jor-El went to all the effort to secure Kal the freedom of choice and free will, but then saddles him with a great task that Kal is being programmed and compelled just as much as anyone else on Krypton, and that's ridiculous. At no point does jor say that he's dissatisfied with Kal. Or demand any specific action from him. Instead, while he predicts and promises greatness, it's still up to Cal whether to aspire for and to achieve that. It isn't a biological or societal imperative, but Cal responding to the choice. And the fact that it is a choice is why it carries such great meaning and significance. Yes, Jonathan and Jorel prescribe greatness for Clark, but that's the principle behind freedom. Freedom for a greater purpose, not simply freedom for for its own unfettered sake. When people fight and they bleed for your freedom, it isn't so you can turn around and use that autonomy to oppress or injure others. It's the reverse. It's the hope that you'll in turn use that freedom for everyone's benefit without the demand or the requirement that you do so. And both of Clark's fathers set those kind of goals before him and he chooses to pick them up. Uh, two more quick points. First, Jorel mentions that they risked so much. So despite Jorel's station and stature, it's Apparent that having Cal naturally was a great risk with potentially grave consequences. Nonetheless, Jorel weighed it and considered it worth the risk. And second, note that Jorel's narrative about the Genesis Chamber is predominantly negative. Jorel points it out as an illustration of Krypton's. Failings, not as a means of Kal restarting the Kryptonian race. At no point does Jor-El direct Kal to reactivate the Genesis Chamber, or command him to use the Codex. Okay, moving on, for the next clip we get a brief cut, and I think it's fair to say that Jor-El and Kal share conversations and content that we're not privy to, but not necessarily relevant to the story being told by the filmmakers. You'll note in the next clip that Zod is mentioned in a negative connotation for the first time, but he looms so large as a figure in Kry- Kryptonian history that he's already been mentioned twice. Without further conversation or context, Jor-El's reference to Zod wouldn't make much sense, so it's arguable that Jor-El has briefed Cal about Zod at some point unseen to us, which further explains Clark's later hesitancy with respect to Zod in the church scene.
1: Why didn't you come with me?
4: We couldn't Cal. No matter how much we wanted to. No matter how much we loved you, your mother, Lara, and I were a product of the failures of our world as much as Zod so was, tied to its fate.
0: Now, this is a really interesting and different take on the traditional mythos. In previous iterations, Jorel and Lara failing to accompany Kalal was almost always either based on impossibility or the stories were simply silent on the matter. In fact, you could easily imagine the screenplay going in that direction. Zod attacks the Citadel just as they're preparing to launch, and Lara and Jorel must stay behind to prevent Zod from stopping the launch, with Jorel dying in the process. But instead, the filmmakers Make it a point to imply that Jorel and Lara could have joined Cal, but deliberately chose not to go for the sake of Cal's development as an admission and acknowledgement of their own flaws and the flaws of their society. And this is important because there's a general consensus that Jorel was the better or the perfect father when compared to Jonathan. But Jorel's position here establishes that even Jorel himself wouldn't hold that to be true. Now, we don't know exactly what those failures were that might have infected the young Cal. I've heard some argue that JorEl actually wanted Cal to more or less rule over Earth as a god, but understood that impulse within himself to be wrong. I'm not sure about that interpretation, but it's interesting. I think we can rely on more relatable motivations. As I've mentioned before, I did a good amount of research into adoption, and the fear of imparting the mistakes of the biological parent to the adopted child is a common refrain for giving up their children for adoption. Especially in the international adoptions that I've studied, There were remarkable cultural differences which also tend to parallel the immigration narratives. For example, East Asian cultures tend to be collectivist, whereas North America tends towards individualism. There are pros and cons to either approach, but in my research, I found that some gave up their children for adoption in the hopes that they might escape the ills of one culture for another. For example, the strong preference for sons over daughters in China has led many daughters being given up for adoption to culture. Where there would be less discrimination. However, I do want to temper all of this with the fact that Jorel says that they wanted to go with Kalel and that they loved him. And that tension or paradox between wanting the best for your child, but that meaning not being there for your child, is something that many biological parents had to struggle with. In other words, Man of Steel adds some of the tendencies of real-world adoptions, as opposed to being strictly dictated by impossibility or silence. And I suspect that added dimension was perhaps something David Goyer included, maybe because he knows both what it is to be a biological father and an adoptive stepfather. Sometimes it isn't purely a matter of, my parents would be with me if they could, but there's other factors involved as well. So I'm alone.
4: No. You're as much a child of Earth now as you are of Krypton. You can embody the best of both worlds. The dream your mother and I dedicated our lives to preserve. The people of Earth are different from us, it's true. But ultimately, I believe that's a good thing. They won't necessarily make the same mistakes we did. Not if you guide them, Cal. Not if you give them hope. That's what this symbol means. The symbol of the House of El means hope. Embodied within that hope is the fundamental belief in the potential of every person to be a force for good. That's
0: what you can bring. Clark's answer shows a desperate yearning to meet his people. It doesn't mean that Clark doesn't see humanity as people that he can connect with. We know that from his relationship to Martha and Jonathan and Lois, but he wanted to know that his struggle wasn't unique. He wants what we all want to be able to relate to somebody else on the same terms. So Clark believes himself to be the last son of Krypton, which amplifies his curiosity about Zod and it amplifies the tragedy of having to stop Zod permanently. Jorel again refers to the Defects of Krypton. But he puts Cal in the position of Redeemer, able to bring out the best of both worlds. When I was younger, one of the big narrative shifts in multiculturalism was away from viewing American culture as a melting pot, which implied a degree of homogenization and a loss of distinction to the idea of the Great American Salad, where the disparate elements still retained their distinctive characteristics and were still identifiable and separable, yet which came together with other distinctive cultures for one harmonious whole working together. And in a way, that mirrors Jorel's ambitions for Kalel. He will be separate, different, distinct, and apart, but he comes together with humanity as a whole to elevate everyone. At least one thing Jor-El imparts to Cal about Krypton is that idea of hope. And I should briefly mention that the idea of the crest as a symbol for hope is attributable to Mark Wade's birthright. Jor-El also gives him the ultimate principle of his house, that every person has the potential to be a force for good. Now, without going into it too much now or here, some hold that this principle is antithetical to the use of lethal force in the defense of self or others. And while I agree that there's a tension, I don't think it's antithetical or contradictory, so long as you remember that theme that we keep revisiting of principles versus codes. If Jor-El meant this as a mindless absolute that could never be crossed, then he wouldn't have fought back against Zod's minions when captured on Krypton. He wouldn't have devised a plan where only Kal-El escapes from Krypton if he believed that everyone's potential for good was an absolute to be preserved. Jor-El wouldn't have told Lois to pick up the sidearm and remain calm when she shoots a kryptonian in the head and surely he wouldn't have devised a plan for sending the phantom zone criminals back to the Phantom Zone. Which is to say, a criticism based around the idea that Jor-El or Superman should have held this as an absolute rule above all else is absurd and inconsistent with Jor-El's actions. Instead, it's clearly a principle. It's an important and a central principle of Jor-El's beliefs, but it also has to be measured and weighed with reason and grace, and not applied blindly without regard for the consequences. Okay, I think I'm going to wrap it up here. I'm going to leave you with the story of Cavill and Crow first meeting, our next commentary episode will pick up with the suit and the flight, but I think our next episode will probably cover all the DCCU news that's transpired, like James Wan for Aquaman and Silverman's THR interview. I
8: did a movie called Proof of Life. It was 2000. We were shooting the boys are playing a rugby union match and there was one particular kid on that field who was a dominant player. So just because I'm a fan of that sport, a big fan of that sport, you know, I had my eye on him and I was watching and I was pretty impressed with him. And then when we'd finished shooting that scene, that kid, that dominant player that took the the moment when I was standing there by myself to come over and talk to him about acting. So we had this brief conversation. And then we got swamped by other kids looking for autographs and photos and what have you. um, So he sort of took off. A couple of days later, I was putting a a package together for the young actor who'd played my my son. And I thought, well, I'll do one for that other kid that talked to me as well, you know.
1: 12 years later, after meeting him in my boarding school and, and having a very brief chat with him there, it's he, he gave me a photo um, of him. A photograph from Gladiator. And I wrote on it, Dear Henry, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step russell and this is after i just walked up to him and said you know excuse me i I wonder what it's like to be an actor and and he didn't need to send me that i didn't ask for that but he went out of his way and every time i went to l.a for three months at a time and didn't get a job and had to go back and work in a bar in london or jersey and and just you know grind and then go back for three months and it didn't work again and go back and keep on flip-flopping and just trying to motivate myself, there was that picture sitting there. And I thought, you know what, it, it, it's a long journey. This is, this is a thousand-mile journey just to get started. And I need to keep on taking those steps, one after the other. And Russell did just that one little thing, which he didn't need to do, meant an awful lot to me.
8: Cut to 12 years later, in Naperville, Illinois, and I'm working out next to this kid, and, you know, I'm watching him deal with the pressures of doing what he's doing very graciously. And I have this thing in the back of my mind, do I know this guy from somewhere? I said to him, do I know you? He goes, do you remember going to Stowe School? I yeah. And he said, well, do you remember a kid who came up and talked to you? And I said, I do. I said, you asked me about acting. What did I say? And he said, he said, well, you get treated like, but they pay you pretty well. I said, that's exactly what I said. (laughs) Hello, Henry, how you doing? So yeah, it was just one of those beautiful little karmic moments that this job affords you
4: sometimes.
0: Okay, I think I've rambled on long enough. Here are some shows I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos.
1: Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet, our assembled and network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend Featuring
0: Superman and Batman Golden Age Superman
5: the superman fan podcast
4: the dc comics present show
5: from crisis to crisis a superman podcast it's superman the schuster herald podcast the carys world podcast superman forever radio superman lives up up and
0: away Cadmus to crisis a superboy podcast the amateur steel a john henry allen's podcast the world's best podcast and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com.
2: Join hosts Michael Bradley,
0: John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer,
3: Russell Brad, Bradley,
5: Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner,
0: Sam Rizzo, Danny Saab, Bob Fisher,
7: Prismo, Mario
5: Benesi, Drew
7: Wintermeyer, David Byer,
2: Matthew Epps, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Yunus and co-host Scotty V
1: at supermanpodcastnetwork.com.
0: Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff, and if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener, and hope you'll join us at ManOfSteelAnswers.com. That way, if you've got questions you want answered or insights that you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time.
3: You're the
5: answer, son.